0: Please turn in your Bibles tonight to Luke 19. Luke 19, we take it up in verse 11 tonight. Luke 19 and verse 11. Let's stand together and hear this parable from our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 19 and verse 11 down through verse 27. Now as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman, "...went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading." then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But he said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone, who has will be given from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Amen. Let's pray, our Father. We pray, O oh God, that you would open this up for us, help us to understand the intent of these words of our Lord as he directs these things not just to his disciples who were listening at that time, but also to us as well. Please. Open this up, help us to understand it and see the full thrust of it for our own lives in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, there are a number of elements to this story, this parable that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ and it's centered around the question of the kingdom of God and we'll get to that in just a moment. But you see this certain nobleman had a number of servants, ten servants in this case. It's somewhat like the parable of the talents, but in this case he he leaves for receiving a kingdom, and he leaves his belongings under the, or his money, his capital under the control of these ten servants. Meantime, the citizens themselves were not happy with him, did not want to submit to his rule, and evidently rebelled against him and sent a delegation even uh, informing him that uh, we will not have him to reign over us. So what is the setting of this? What is this? Eschatology plays into it and we don't shy away from questions relating to eschatology or that we don't make it our main hobby horse in this church. But there are three ways to look at this kingdom within this parable. First is that Jesus, who is the master, the nobleman in this parable, that Jesus does not receive the kingdom at all, at least up to this point. He is not a king right now, but will be later on when he returns. Okay, that's one way some have taken this parable. The second way to look at the parable, in that case, the parable still applies to all of us because he has not returned yet. So the parable would still apply to us. Secondly... Second interpretation of this from an eschatological perspective is what? Is that Jesus is king right now. He's gone to receive a kingdom, and he has received it. He has the kingdom. The kingdom is not completely consummated, but the parable still applies to us. The third way of looking at this parable is the kingdom is already consummated. He has already returned. He is king right now, and his servants are supposed to rule over the cities. And this parable really does not apply to any of us. So those are the three eschatological perspectives of this parable. And I guess most of you know by now that I would take the second perspective on the parable. And the reason I say that Jesus has already received the kingdom is because of the corpus of material in the New Testament concerning the kingdom of God. We see it's almost without exception... Bring brought out to us in the present tense. The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace. The kingdom of God comes with power, etc. But in 1 Corinthians 15, I think we do have the most helpful text on this. I'd like you to turn there just for a moment so we could read uh, some of these verses, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 22 and then down to 28. So let's, let's read this section And the the best way to understand eschatology, I've just spent the last three weeks of my life working on a 7,000-word essay on eschatology. And I believe the best way and the safest way to look at eschatology is to look at the order of events in each individual passage. The trouble comes in when we try to jam all the passages together. That's the point at which you're taking risks. But when you bring a single passage in and then you outline... The, the events according to the order that's been presented in that passage, you're on safe ground by keeping those order of a, that order of events in place. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, let's begin. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to a God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he says, all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all, so what are the order of events eschatologically presented in this passage? I think it's fairly clear that the first event is that Jesus rises from the dead. That's first. So Christ has risen from the dead, roughly what, 33 A.D. So that's the first event. Secondly, Christ reigns until all enemies are under His feet. Thirdly, Christ comes at the end, and those that are Christ's are resurrected. Fourthly, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. And fifthly, the Son delivers the consummated kingdom to the God the Father, and he is subjected to the Father, and God is all in all. So that's very simply the five events listed in this passage. Jesus rises from the dead. Christ reigns until all enemies are under his feet. Christ comes at the end, and those that are Christ are resurrected. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, and the Son delivers the kingdom to the God the Father. So... I don't believe there's a lot of question as to whether or not Christ is reigning today. I believe He is. I don't think there's any question. Um, Ephesians 1.20 puts this to bed, probably even better than the passage we just read. And here we see that God the Father has raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and powers, and might and dominion, and every name that is named, Not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. It's pretty hard to argue the case there that Christ is not king and he is not reigning. I would have an impossible task to try to explain it to you that way. Indeed, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He has been placed far above all principle and power and might and dominion, every name that is named. Now, he's put all things under his feet, given him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that doesn't mean that all of the enemies of Jesus have submitted themselves to his rule. But it does mean that he is the ruler. So that that he is the ruler, and there are some who say we will not submit ourselves to this ruler, doesn't mean that he isn't the ruler. Indeed, there are those who have sent the message, and they continue to send that message, we will not have this man to rule over us. Nevertheless, he is ruling, whether or not they admit to that rule. And I believe Psalm 2 applies as well. Psalm 2 being used by the apostles in Acts chapter 4, where they are corrected by the word of God himself. These judges of the earth that will not submit themselves to the rule of the Son will be crushed. And that's uh, the word that comes from Psalm 2. Now, either the consummation of the kingdom is a two-step process, including a future millennium and the final end of all things, or it is a single step coming at his return and the final judgment. Now, I happen to reject the two-step consummation. I believe that Jesus consummates the rule at the end. There isn't like this. He sort of consummates it in the millennium. And then later, he does his super-duper consummation at the very end. That's just not my p- perspective. There's Some people believe that. I just don't receive that. I, I believe he is king today, and he progressively is bringing his enemies under his footstool. And yes, there may be a final Gog and Magog battle, etc., but whatever the case, Jesus is progressively bringing his enemies under his footstool, and then at the very end, he consummates the kingdom, and there is no more war All things are reconciled to himself. There is no more war for our Savior and our King. And he is King forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, Revelation 19, verses 14 and 15 says, The armies which were in heaven followed him, that is, Jesus, upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth, out of of the mouth of Jesus, goes a sharp sword That with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he is on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So what is this? This is a picture of what Jesus does in history. The sword is what? Jesus is not a cosmic circus sword swallower. I think we all understand that. We don't take, you know, there's... Literal translations of prophecy that are just illegitimate. And that would be an obvious example of one. What, what is Jesus doing here? What is, what is the sword? The sword is the word of God. We all, we all know that, right? The sword is the word of God. How does he conquer the nations? He does it by preaching. The smiting of the nations happens by the word of God preached to the nations. And this word is a nuclear bomb falling on the nations. And the cleanup operation continues around the globe to this day. So that's just some broad sweeps. Uh, We haven't gotten into a lot of the nitty-gritty. You can get my paper if you want to. Um, But what's interesting in this parable and throughout the New Testament is there actually isn't much about the kingdom of God provided in the New Testament. Acts 1 and verse 3 is one of the... References to the kingdom of God that shows up after the resurrection of Jesus. And listen, this is what he, he brings to his disciples. He presents himself alive to his disciples after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, we find the kingdom of God comes with power. And then Romans 14, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, so it's pretty much it. Now, someone said, "Well, shouldn't there be more on the kingdom of God throughout these New Testament epistles? If if Jesus was speaking so much of the kingdom, where where is all this data on the kingdom? Well, there isn't much of a mention of the kingdom of God, but what we do find is descriptions of what the Holy Spirit is doing amongst the people of God." And as I've said before, the kingdom of God is like mycelium. Jesus said in Luke 17, as we covered a couple of weeks ago, the kingdom does not come with observation. This is Jesus' modus operandi for the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It starts in the heart, it is within you, he says, the very same passage. The kingdom of God is like mycelium, as we said. It lies under the surface. You can't see it, but it does feed into human cultures. And any kind of healthy culture we have seen throughout 2,000 years of Christ's reign is, is due entirely to the work of Christ. I mean, think about, I think about what the world would have been like prior to the coming of Jesus. And I've got a book called Preparing the World for Jesus. If you want to see the nightmarish conditions of the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians and all the others. The, it was just so destructive. There wasn't anything good about the thing uh, until the coming of Christ. And then what do you have with the coming of Christ but the introduction of a charity, the, the abolition of abortion, the abolition of homosexuality, etc. We have all these wonderful things that come. The slavery is done away with practically uh, within 600 years. It took some time, but manumissions were occurring in the 2nd century. On into Augustine and Patrick and others were obliterating slavery. It had been around for 4,000 years. I was, nobody would have dreamed of that happening in 40 B.C., But with the Christ coming and the turning on the lights, tremendous things happened around the world. And to Christ be all the praise and glory, let's make sure that we're having our children read the history of what happens in preparing the world for Jesus and then taking the world for Jesus. Amazing things happened over the last 2,000 years. Now, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 14 also, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And here is an interesting text only because the, the kingdom of God comes without observation. So it's, it's, a, it's a very subtle sort of introduction to the world. But here we find that at one point, the king will be manifested. To all there will be a manifestation such that everybody will see the king and will acknowledge him. Now in verse 11 of our text, Jesus spoke the parable because they thought the kingdom of God would appear suddenly, and it turns out the kingdom of God is not going to appear suddenly. The point is it's not going to appear suddenly. it 's not that the kingdom of God doesn't exist it 's just that it doesn't appear until he 's manifested in his own time. Are you all with me here? Do you all follow me? That word appear is a critical word. There were those who were pretty much counting on the kingdom of Jesus appearing such that the entire world would recognize it, believer and unbeliever both, and yet this is not what Jesus had intended. He intended for his kingdom to be like mycelium, working under the surface, affecting human cultures over a period of several thousand years, and that's what we've seen. So I believe this parable applies to us today, and let's go over it. The first thing that happens in verse 12, our Lord, our Master, goes into a far country, receives a kingdom. Okay, that's done. Check. That's off the list. He's received the kingdom. Went to a far country to receive the kingdom. He received the kingdom. That's done. Now, secondly, he left us gifts. He left his, his men, his servants, these gifts. These ten servants received the ten minas, one received one mina, and each of the others received the other minas. And uh, so this is somewhat different than we find in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. But he left his servants gifts. What are these gifts? But these are the gifts that Jesus has given to all of us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, okay, verse 7. This is almost word for word exactly what Jesus has given to us here in Luke chapter 19. Ephesians chapter four and verse seven: To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So he's ascended. What does he do? He gives gifts to men. Now that he's ascended, what does it mean? But that he is also first descended to lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who is ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, and for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So this, these are the gifts that Jesus gives to each of us. A mina was about $16,000 in value. So each of them got about $16,000. He gave this capital to his ten servants in order for them to steward the capital. Some of them asked, well, what is the minas? What are the talents that we receive? The talents we receive is, is any good gift that God has given to us, In terms of our talents, in terms of our heritage, anybody raised in a Christian home is somebody who's received something of the teaching, the preparation, the gifts that God has given to his parents or to the church where he was raised, and he receives some of that. And so there is something of a heritage that we receive from our mothers and fathers and from those who have gone before us. So so any of the collection of the spiritual capital that we have received over these 2,000 years of course, my father received it from others, uh, and those have received it from others before him, and so forth. So we have this heritage we've received through the church and through godly families over a period of time. So your talents is what you receive. It's not just your talents. It's not just your gifts. It's not just the knowledge you've received in some of these things. It's also any kind of application of time or money that God has given to you. So, Jesus' parables apply to us. They apply to the here and now. Jesus' teaching is about life here and now. Praise God that as we read this, we we discover who we are. We know where we are. We know why we are. We know why we are where we are. We're given purpose for life. We're given a mission in life. We're given things to do in this life. We're given motivation to engage in our work in this life. Who are we? you got to know who you are. We have this discussion with, you know, 16-year-old kids that can't get out of bed to do their work or just lacking motivation, you know. And not just 16-year-olds, but they're 61-year-olds who have a hard time getting a grip for who they are and why we're here and am I cosmic dust floating around the universe of chance? Or why, what am I doing here? Why, why am I motivated to do anything in life? Who am I? See, this comes down to basic questions, doesn't it? One of the examples I like to use is the young man that signs up for the army and he goes to boot camp. And the first Saturday he tries to sleep in until 10 o'clock in the morning. And the sergeant comes in. And he says, what are you doing? He's sleeping. In a t- well, I just didn't feel like getting out of bed this morning. I made the choice. To- you made the choice. You made the choice. That's not your choice. You don't own yourself. The army, the U.S. Army owns you. Uncle Sam owns you. And I will tell you what to do. You don't belong to yourself, and you have no right to make these decisions for yourself. Now, the point is that that young man needs to understand where he is, and who he is, and who he belongs to. Are you with me? In the same sense, brothers and sisters, whether you're young or old, whoever you are, young woman, young man, older man, whoever you happen to be, you have to understand who you are. You have to understand, you know, why you're here who you belong to, who you serve. This is so essential to to life, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We are the servants of the king of kings. We, We have been given capital to steward. We don't belong to ourselves. The Bible says you've been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. Glorify God with your body, but your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus. So that which we have, Been given belongs to the master. What we got to remember is that we are stewards. You say, "Well, I, I, I got a bank account of fourteen thousand dollars. I, own this house. I, I have a car. I, I, I own my family. I own my wife. I own all this stuff." No, you don't. You don't own your children. You don't own your house, and you don't own your car. You've been given all these things on loan from God. See, you see how the perspective is different if you see it that way? That you're a steward of all of this. It's essential to get our bearings about our work, our life, our gifts, and this should keep us humble. Because you know what? If he gave it to you, he can take it away from you. It's one one thing we all learn, right? How many of you learned that? He can give it to you, he can take it away from you. Okay, he's the master. He knows what he's doing. We accept that. Okay, now we're also left with an order. So what's the order? Occupy till I return. That's the KJV word. I don't think that's the very best word. Do business is probably better. The word is used only once in Scripture. But in, in the secular Greek texts, we find it's just a common word for doing trade doing business, investing. That's what it is. Just invest, do business, do trade until I come. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples, and that's what he's telling us tonight. We are called to the task of aggressively, intently, intentionally increasing the wealth of our king. Okay? You say, oh, I just don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in life. Well, there it is. That's it. Any questions? Good. Have a good life. See you later. That's it. You are the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and you are called to aggressively, intensely, intentionally increase the wealth of your king. And we're given just these three things time, money, and gifting. As as far as I can tell, that's it. The gifting includes the knowledge. The, the, the heritage that we receive in terms of faith and love and some of these other things. Yes, we receive some of those things, but it boils down to time, money, and gifts. That's it. You're given time, money, and gifts. Now, what are you going to do with that for the next 10 years of your life? What do you do about it with the 20 years or 40 years you have left? In view of eternity, how will you spend what you have? In view of eternity, brothers and sisters, how are you going to spend what you have? You see, this really tests our overarching metaphysic, our worldview commitment, will you focus on your comforts and your health here and now? Will you focus on your wealth and putting together a comfortable life and a comfortable retirement? Is that your focal point? Is that what you're looking forward to? Do you have a view of eternity in all of this? And what would make the best return on an investment? The best return on investment is anything worked on here that will still remain in eternity. That's, that's your best investment. If you can invest anything of your time, your money, your gifting over the next 24 hours, if there's any way that you could take your gifts or take your time or your money or whatever it is and invest it for something that will remain into eternity, that's it. Well, let me give you some examples. It's bearing children and being extremely enthusiastic about getting married, bearing children, and raising children in the covenant. That's a major investment. In fact, I would say for the average mom and dad, young man, young woman, that's the number one investment that we make in our lives. No greater joy than to see our children walking in the truth. That's for sure. But for the average, again, there are those who are given the gift of singleness. But for the rest of us, brothers and sisters, the number one most important thing that young men and young women need to do as they throw their lives over onto the barbed wire and they make a way for the kingdom of God. The number one way in which they will do that will be to give up of themselves, sacrifice of themselves when they're 16, 17, 18 years of age, working the 70, 80-hour weeks for young men, Preparing for that marriage, preparing their character, their faith, their love, their self sacrifice for their mother and their siblings, and all the rest, the number one thing they can do for eternity is to prepare for marriage, get married, and have children. I can't think of any other better way to do this. Again, there are some exceptions. There are some young women who will be, you know, running an orphanage in India somewhere. I think of that young woman who decided she would give up her life to work an orphanage up in northern India. This would have been 10, 15 years ago. A Hindu mob came in and burned down that orphanage. And uh, she, she ran back in to try to rescue a couple of those little kids in that orphanage. And, and, and they grabbed that woman and they threw her back in the orphanage. She burned to death. Now she's got a vision for the kingdom of God. I'll tell you what, there are young men and young women who have a vision for the kingdom of God and not for a self-centered life here now. But, uh, brothers and sisters, let's just be reasonable. For most of us, it's going to be preparing ourselves for marriage, getting married, having children, and raising those children, nurturing the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipling the nations by discipling one or two or three or four young men at a time for a period of three, four, or five years. I'm just giving some examples. What would it be to, to, to invest in the kingdom of God? Throwing yourself in the ministry, caring for the least of the persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the best opportunity, I think, ever in probably 1,600 years, the best opportunity in 1,600 years to give up our lives for the persecuted church around the world today. And I just interviewed a young man who's, who's given up his life to to help Nigeria, the worst place on earth right now, 4,000 martyrs every year, uh, and, and he found the absolute worst refugee camp he could possibly find. Uh, he's been there for 10 years, he said... Kevin, I, I, I found it, the worst possible, 5,000 people living in a place, they're dying right and left, and, and they're living in these, these little hovels made out of those black uh, garbage sacks. He says, there are 5,000 of these Christians, and I'm raising $100,000, I'm going back in a month, and I'm, gonna, I'm buying some land, and we're going to build some bricks, and we're start building houses for these people. Friends, that's the way to waste your life for the kingdom of God. There's a man who's investing in the kingdom of God. Praise God. And if the rest of us can get on board with that, hallelujah. I'm just giving a few examples here. Young people dedicating their lives to the ministry of the church, caring for the persecuted church, missions trip where you're actually carrying money into nations like Nigeria and Pakistan to help the persecuted church, wasting your life working in orphanage, throwing your life down for the kingdom of God. Finding a spouse, doing the same thing, getting married, then throwing your lives away together for the kingdom of God. How about that? I need to hear some amens from the young men, young women. Uh, Guys, a couple of you go, yeah, amen. I'm on board. Let's do that. I hope so. So, brothers and sisters, what is it? I think it's evangelism, discipleship, bringing God's principles into institutions for the benefit of the church, the sanctifying of God's people, the edifying of the brothers and sisters in the church, the building up of the saints, supporting the church body, giving up your money to support ministry, hospitality, helping poor brothers and sisters in Christ, et cetera, et cetera. So we just go through the list. But this is what God wants us doing. This is what Jesus wants us doing as he says, occupy until I return. And then let's move on to verses 15 to 19. There are rewards that come at the end. Rewards for those who invest their time, money, and resources well. So it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. He said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, having authority over the ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. And the, the, the principle here is to whom much is given, much is required. To whom little is given, little is required. But also, he who does is faithful in small things is given other things. So there are rewards. Now, I'm not about to tell you what these rewards will look like later on in the future, in the new heavens and new earth. I I don't have an ability to tell you exactly what they're going to look like. Now, I believe that that in the future, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be human culture. Th- there will be something analogous to what we have here on this earth. We're not up in the heavens playing harps with the angels. That's, that's not it. There's a coming in and out of the city. There seems to be nations. Things like that are going on in Revelation 21, 22. I can't give you the full picture. All I'm saying is that there are blessings for those who have been faithful so bring on the suffering and the hardship come what may we will not be discouraged we don't know what reward consists of but we know the rewarder and that's all that matters see by faith we have to know that our savior is good and our god is good and eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that god has prepared for those who wait upon him And also, Romans chapter 8, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, God is good. How good is God? God is really good. God is the very best rewarder in the entire universe. So, based on that, does that motivate you to be faithful? Now, that should be something of a motivator we should be motivated for two reasons. One, that God has already been good to us and that God promises more good to us. You see, we're motivated on both sides of that. We're motivated that He's already given His Son for us. So His love motivates our love. But then also, we know that God is good. He's promised these good things to us and both will serve as an adequate motive for His servants. and That is us. The basic motive cannot be the prospect of rewards, however. And I think that's because the men in the parable are not told the nature of the rewards at the beginning. You follow me here? No. The the master didn't say, okay, here's a mina. If you give me ten minas, man, I'm going to give you ten cities. He didn't say it at the beginning, did he? So, So the men in the parable have no idea what the rewards are going to be. And we don't really know what the rewards are going to be either. We haven't given the concrete concept of what there is. Just simply saying, the word says, it will blow your mind. And God says, just trust me on that. Okay, But what's important here is the heart's inclination or disinclination toward the master was fundamental. And for this reason, I don't believe that the parable of the talents or the parable of the minas speaks to merit. I don't believe it does. For one thing, there's no agreement up front. There's no mention of merit at all. Just simply, here, steward this, and then later, oh good, good stewardship, more cities, let's go. But it wasn't as if they, they earned it. It's the heart inclination or disinclination that was the significant thing. You see in this passage, this servant interviewed d- did not expect the joy and the affirmation of their master. Contrast that with Matthew 25, where the first two servants loved their master, and here's what the master said at the end of the parable, the parable of talents. He, he told them, enter into the joy of your master. That is, the master was, was taking a delight in them. He, he appreciated them, and they appreciated him. But the third servant did not expect the joy or the affirmation of his master and evidently did not consider that to be of value. You see that in verse 20. Another came and said, Master, here's your mina. Kept it in a handkerchief. I feared you because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and, and reaped what you do not sow. Why then did you put up my money in the bank that at my coming I might have Collected it with interest. This is a response of Jesus to this man. So our motive to work has got to be based on this relationship. It cannot be based in the reward or the merit. It cannot be based solely in the gloriousness of the cause. That is the kingdom. But primarily in our appreciation for the king or the master. This man perceived the master to be an austere and a hard man, collecting what he did not deposit and reap what he did not sow. But our motive should not be that way because our perception of the master cannot be like that. It was ultimately a bad relationship with the master that yielded this particular response on the part of the servant. So, in closing, verse 27, Jesus assigns a violent end to his enemies. Tremendous rewarder for those who love him, but he's a vehement judge for those who did not love him and those who mischaracterize him as an austere and a hard man. There are two categories of those who were punished in this parable. Those who rejected Christ's rule, and then there are the servants who had a wrong relationship with the master. In Matthew 25, 30, we find the worthless servant, the servant that did not not return, anything beyond the one talent he'd received, he was cast into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We read, read that in Matthew twenty five thirty. So there is this quite violent end to those who rejected Christ's rule and had the wrong relationship with a master or was not in relationship with a master. At the end of the day, the final judgment is, is surrounding the question of whether or not the servants were known by the master and knew the master, right? In Matthew chapter 7, what do we read? But that those that were cast into hell were those who were anomians, that is, they were those who were given to iniquity or lawlessness, but also those who were never known by Jesus Christ. He said, depart from me, you cursed, I never knew you. So the lack of relationship, the lack of Jesus knowing These people, and I would also add the lack of these people knowing him to be who he is, results in a bad relationship. Obviously, one has not been converted or regenerated and has a bad relationship with the king and refuses to bow to the laws of the king. And for those reasons, they are cast into outer darkness. So that is the end of those who are not in saving relationship With the master, but for us, brothers and sisters, we are in relationship with Jesus. Why? Because we know He's loved us, and we love Him. We know He's loving. We know He's loved us. We know He's given Himself for us. We know He's not just our master, but also our our friend, as He presents Himself to His disciples in that way. We also know that His kingdom is the most promising kingdom. We also are excited that He's the most successful Lord and King. You know, people like to work for a good master. In fact, I had this conversation with one of my daughters this week. What is it about a good business, the best business? The business you want to work for is the business who's got the best manager, the best master. That's absolutely the best. I did a lot of different jobs over a period of 20, 30 years, and I had some good managers. I had some bad managers. I would tell you that uh, in my organizational behavior classes and such that I took in, in college, the first thing you get is... A person's pay or a person's reward in terms of money is not very much of a motivator. His most important motivator is his relationship with his employer and how his employer treats him and the affirmation and appreciation that is shown him from the manager. That is by far the most influential element in the workplace that motivates the employees. So even ungodly people know this, that you're... Your relationship with a manager matters more than anything else. Our perception of Jesus, our perception of the Master, the King, the Lord, our Lord, matters. Who is He? What's our relationship with Him? What do we think of Him? We think He's the best Master in the universe. We believe He's the greatest Lord that... Of, of all things, he's, he's given us his own life. He's redeemed us. He's produced a kingdom that will never end. The most beautiful kingdom of righteousness will con- continue on, continue to grow and grow, and then eventually continue into eternity. These are the best possible things. There's nothing better, nothing more motivating to anybody. But it begins with your perception of the master. That's what matters more than anything else. We have the best master, the most successful lord and king, the most promising kingdom got a great relationship. He loves us. We love him. He he rewards us unlike anybody else could ever reward us. He's not a hard man. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. That's our perspective, and nothing could motivate us more to get out of bed on Monday morning and serve our Savior as this message tonight. This is what motivates us, the love of God and the beauty of our King and our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we read this, it thrills us to think about how we have such opportunities to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is our great redeemer, the one who will reconcile all things to himself, the one who will guarantee that we will all live happily ever after, the one who has established the kingdom and will continue to grow that kingdom and to, to bring about the most successful end to this kingdom, this consummation of the kingdom in the years to come at the very end father for all these reasons uh, we're excited to serve him oh god we pray that our perception of jesus would only get better and better as we read of him in the word as we meditate upon his his words his works as we seek out his commands as we consider what he calls us to do in our lives oh god we pray that we would bring about a great return in the last days of our lives if we're going to be done in the next week or so Or if it's going to be 10 years from now, may we use these years, these hours, for the benefit of our King and our Master. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.